Good morning, College Park. Our scripture reading this morning comes from two different verses. Psalm 139, 7 through 17. 1 Peter 3, 3 through 4. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray now and get to work on our subject today. Father, help us to deal with this identity crisis that we all feel And in particular, as we deal today with um, the crisis of our appearance and the control that it has on us culturally and personally. So help us to know what your word says and how we ought to live in light of it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began this four-week series on the matter of identity And in dealing with the issue of identity, we're looking at some big picture questions, questions that are always rolling around in your soul. Questions like, who am I? Where do I belong? And what is life all about? We're trying to figure out how to do life, how to be able to live. And our world is filled with answers to those questions that are not helpful. Last week, we called them scripts. And there are negative scripts in the world, there are positive scripts, there are scripts inside of your soul, positively and negatively, and these scripts tell us who we are. And yet the Bible has a script for us where God tells us who we are. Last week we saw that it's way too easy for us to define ourselves by what we do, by the jobs that we have, our performance what our achievements are or have been. And the gospel gives us a different script. The gospel grounds us in an identity underneath the identity. Or to put it how Paul said it in the book of Colossians, we have an identity, my life is hidden with Christ in God. Or he says, Christ is your life. And I hope that becomes your mantra, that your identity when bad things happen or when good things happen, that you anchor your 
answer to this question, who am I? And your answer is Christ is my life. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I, I, I want you so badly to understand what it means that Christ is your life and how that can define who and what you are. Paul also said it this way, Christ is all and in all. And it's, it's out of that bedrock of unmerited grace that then we are freed because of this new positional reality to work hard and to work with excellence and to work in sacrificial service of others because who we are is not what we do. Last week we saw that indicatives precede imperatives or position precedes practice, that the gospel grounds us in who we are so that we don't try and fill in a God-shaped identity hole in our hearts with work or today as we'll see, how we look. Today we're going to talk about this matter of how we look. And I cannot think of a time when I've given a message like this. And yet the more that I look into this matter of appearance and body image, um, how we appear and look, the more important it really seems to me to be. What I want to talk about today is a biblical perspective on appearance, a biblical perspective on beauty and even attractiveness. I don't want to talk just about externals, but even help you understand the the internal reality of how the Bible speaks to this. And from a cultural standpoint, let's be honest, this is a very, very relevant subject. We, we live in a world that is appearance-oriented. From marketing to airbrushed images, there just is this, this script that's in our world about how we should look, how we should appear. The statistics are staggering. In 2013, there were over 10.3 million surgical and non-surgical cosmetic procedures. And that's one data point. Here's another one. Since 1997, that is represents a 471% increase. In my lifetime, 471% increase. Research would also tell us that somewhere between 80 and 90% of women and 43% of men report some level of body dissatisfaction. Last year, over $12 billion, $12 billion was spent on body-altering procedures, not including things like clothing and makeup, hairstyling, tanning, etc., etc., etc. The median age for an eating disorder in adolescence is 12 to 13. And in the United States, 20 million women suffer from a clinically significant eating disorder or have suffered at some point in their lifetime. 20 million. And then just from that cultural script, listen to this. According to the CDC, for women 20 years and older, the average height for a woman is 5'3 and weight 166 pounds. 5'3, 166. But for the average fashion model, the average height is 5'10 and 120 pounds. Just let that just sink in. And we have children being raised in a culture where image and body and everything is... that's connected to that is so incredibly important. In fact, I would argue that there is an ache 
within our soul as human beings. There's an ache culturally regarding how we look and our appearance. And what happens is this cultural script and our own natural insecurity keeps us distracted, defeated, or in some cases even addicted to how we look. Some time ago, a a beauty company did a social experiment. They um, hired a forensic sketch artist, the kind of person who can hear somebody describe a criminal um, and then draw a sketch of that person and, and get it fairly accurate. So what they did is they took this FBI sketch artist and they brought women in one at a time and put them behind a screen and then had the woman describe her appearance to the FBI sketch artist. So he never saw her and she described herself, her chin, her eyes, her hair. And then he developed a sketch. That was one portrait. And then he would have somebody else come in who had just met that woman. And that person would describe the woman that he had just met. So he would describe her chin, her face, her hair, and everything to that FBI sketch artist. And so he would develop two portraits. The first portrait being what the woman thought of herself in terms of how she looked. And then secondly, how someone else thought she looked. And then what they did is they brought the women in. And they showed them the difference between the two portraits. I want you to see the effects and the result. Watch this. The power behind that social experiment is rather apparent and obvious. And that is that the way that we see ourselves is conditioned by a whole host of things going on inside of our souls. And this is not a sermon about you looking in the mirror and saying, I'm lovely, I'm beautiful, I'm attractive, I'm awesome. (laughs) It's not that at all. At the same time, I want to suggest to you, church, that instead of there being two portraits, one, what you think of you, and two, what other people think of you, there's actually a third. And that third portrait is, what does God think of you? And I want to suggest to you that third portrait is far more accurate, far more lovely, and far more beautiful than you can possibly imagine. And today what I want to do is try and help frame a little bit of what that third portrait looks like. And how does the Bible handle the matters of beauty and the body. And so what I want to do is walk through five texts and give you five truths about beauty and the body, and I hope to be able to frame this this third portrait. first text is in Psalm 139. And... The first truth that we need to lay down, we're going to kind of walk through this from a theological, a spiritual, and then a practical um, framework. The first truth we need to lay down is this one, is that the Bible says that we are wonderfully made. Psalm 139, if you have a Bible, go there. And Verses 14 and 15 is, are, are the main passages that we want to look at. But you need to know that Psalm 139 is all about the sovereign purposes of God. In verse 1, the psalmist says, Lord, you have searched me and known me. It means God knows, according to verses 2 to 4, what we are going to do. He knows what we are thinking. He knows what we're going to say. He even knows what we are going to say before we say it. What's more, verses 4 to 12 of Psalm 139, there is no place that we can hide from God's presence. And again, it's the way the psalmist is simply describing here God's sovereign purposes. And then, 
David, who is the author here, he comes to verses 13 through 15, and he's amazed at God's creative power. And he says this, For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. He's talking there about himself. You've made me wonderfully. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. So just stop for a moment and pull yourself out of 21st century America and think of what it would have been like to be in the Old Testament time when you have no ultrasound. You don't even know how how a, ch- a child in the gestational process is formed. We, we, they know so li- All they know is suddenly there's a, 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 a growth in a woman's tummy and I know all the terms, okay, so, uh, and <laughs> trying to bring this, all right, never mind. So, and you see movement that's happening all over the place, and then nine months later, a human being is born that is alive and breathing, and it looks like a little image of his or her mommy and daddy. That is unbelievable, is it not? And now, even in our own culture, we have ultrasounds, and we, and we know more about what's happened in the context of that gestational development, but is it still not unbelievably glorious when that happens? How anybody could be at the birth of a new baby and hear that first cry and see that beautiful, formed little life and think, wow, this just happens. You, you have to work to deny God's existence in that moment. It screams and declares God's glorious might and His power. And so creation, the human being, babies, define and show us the beauty of God's creative power. Just for instance, right underneath your nose, there's a little part of you. It's not, you may know it as your lip. This is called your philtrum. And what that is, all of us with different sized noses, different, you know, size heads, different hair color, different skin pigments, but we all have this thing called the philtrum. You know what the philtrum is? The philtrum is the space that about month two or three, the three things of your face all converged at that point and your face in your mother's womb took form. And God miraculously created you. The Bible says that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. So when I start about talking about beauty, that there's something glorious, something really attractive, something compelling about what it means to be a human and about what it means to be alive. So this sermon is not down on beauty. It's not down on humanity. In fact, Psalm 139 says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are part of a beautiful creation that says something marvelous about our Creator. Here's the second thing. The second truth is that we are image bearers. Go to Genesis chapter 1. What makes human beings special and what makes us truly beautiful is the fact that we are image bearers. Genesis 1.27 puts it this way. After describing all of creation, after creating male and female, we now have a summary in Genesis 1, and it says this, So God created man in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The idea is being made in the image of God. Now, what does this image of God mean? We could take a whole sermon to talk about this subject. Let me just give you about six things that it means. Being an image bearer means that when it comes to you, there's something divine connected with being an image bearer. You see, there's something about us that are conduits at some level to show the world what God is like. And we don't fully understand all of what that means, but there's an imprint of God on human beings unlike anything else in the creation, that we reflect the beauty of what God is like. It also means something different. Not only divine, but something different. It means that we are different than all of the created order, different than animals, different than plants, different than earth, different than stars and, 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 the, and the sea. We are different in terms of the created order, that there's something about humanity that reflects the very image of who and what God is. It also means that we are dependent. So image has something to do with dependency. It doesn't mean that we are the image of ourself. Image doesn't terminate with me. I am made in the image of someone else, namely God. It also is something delightful. It means that when human beings express their uniqueness and when they do things that are just beautiful and compelling or when they look compelling or gifted, there is something delightful because that is a joy-filled reminder of the goodness and kindness of God. That something in that image-bearing quality is now reflecting who and what God is. It also, this image, is something that is distorted. It means that sin has marred the image of God in us. And we see the marring of God's image in us when we use this image-bearing status for ourselves, for our own glory, when we use our image-bearing status and lack of love with others, or in an attempt to be an image independent from God, to forget that we are an image of Him. And finally... Being an image bearer has something to do with a destiny. It means that the hope in the future is that through redemption in Jesus, the distorted image that still remains within us, that image that is there but not perfect, will one day be made perfect. Or as John says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So, to be an image bearer means that I reflect, you reflect the image of God. That our gifts reflect His gifts. The things that you're really good at, the things that bring you joy, the thing that someone looks at and says, how in the world do you do that? And you're like, I don't know, I just do it. You know why that's there? Because God put it there. When your brain fires and you can put together little words that just are so clear and so cogent, and someone is like, how do you do that? Or you can do mental math like like that, and you know you're in a you, you don't have to get your calculator out to figure a tip at a restaurant, right? If I'm ever in dinner with you, I'd be like, "How do you do that? I don't know how to do that." That's a gift. It's not just your school. You're not just smart. You may be smart, but that didn't come from you. That is something that God imaged Himself in and through you. Our beauty reflects His. Some of you who've been at 
College Park for a while will we'll know the name Steve DeWitt. He pastors in Crown Point, Indiana, was a staff member here years ago. He wrote a great book called Eyes Wide Open. It's on the beauty, the total beauty of God, the beauty of God in everything. Here's what he says about beauty. I love this. Beauty was created by God for a purpose, to give us the experience of wonder. And wonder, in turn, is intended to lead us to the ultimate human expression and privilege, worship. This is my favorite part. Beauty is both a gift and a map. It is a gift to be enjoyed and a map to be followed to the source of the beauty with praise and thanksgiving. So all beauty, physical beauty as well, talents, anything you look at and go, wow, is meant to be a gift and a map. The problem in our culture is that we too often simply see things that are beautiful as gifts, if we even see them as those but rarely do we see them as maps that are meant to lead us to God's beauty. Third, the other thing I want to emphasize from 1 Corinthians 6 is the body is important. As I leaned into the researching this, it just it struck me over and over and over the importance of the body. Because you, you might think that my take on this sermon would be to downplay the body and to downplay beauty. On the contrary, I want you to understand how valuable the physical body is to God. In fact, so much so that he raised Jesus from the dead. And part of our salvation is the restoration physically of the unmarring or the repairing of the image of God that has been broken in us because of sin. Throughout the history of the church, there's often been an incorrect understanding of the body particularly in the teaching of the Gnostics in the first century, was the idea that the body was bad and the soul was good. So whatever you did with the body really, really didn't matter as long as you, your soul was, was, was headed in the right place or as long as your, your soul had the right motives and intentions. And you know what? There's a little bit of Gnosticism still within our own culture today of people thinking, well, what I do with my body doesn't really matter. It's just sex. What, what, why does it matter? Just doesn't matter. I'm spiritual. Why do these things matter? There's a very prevalent mindset within our culture. What I do with my body, what I do with somebody else, really is immaterial. What really matters is the inner me. When the Bible says, no, the, you can't, the inner you matters, but so does the body. In fact, so much so that God raised Jesus from the dead. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 6 because there were some believers who had bought into this, and believe it or not, they were actually going to temple prostitutes. And they didn't think it was an issue because the body was bad. And Paul writes to them and says three things. First, he says that the body is important because of the resurrection. Verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 6, it says, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Meaning there's a coming resurrection. The body is so important to God. The physical realm is so important to God that resurrection is a part of the redemption story. Easter, we celebrate not just salvation, we celebrate physical salvation. The grave is empty and Jesus has been raised. Secondly, 1 Corinthians also tells us that the presence of Christ is very much connected to what we do with our bodies. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And so Paul makes this argument. If your bodies are the member of Christ, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And Paul's answer is never. And then finally, 
1 uh, Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So what Paul wants that church to see, and what we need to see, is that the body really matters. The point here is to realize that we have probably not thought enough about a theology of the body. We've probably not thought enough about a theology of beauty. In fact, if I were to ask you the script of our culture as it relates to beauty, like, who are the attractive people? You could probably tell me. But if I ask you, what does the Bible say about beauty? Or what is the, what's the biblical theology of the body? My guess is most of us would have blank stares. Like, I, I don't know. And yet the Bible has a lot to say. And when you begin to look at beauty in the body through a theological lens, some amazing things begin to emerge in terms of God's view of the physical realm. You see, if you're not careful, you can fall into two extremes. One would be people who think that the body isn't really that important, and so therefore they don't take good care of their physical bodies. The stewardship of their body isn't important. They diminish the care of their body, diminish their own health, because They've had their quiet time and because they're, they're, they're spiritual on the inside when the physical really does matter. Or you have people who will justify all sorts of moral excess because the body really doesn't matter. So you ju- can justify promiscuity, immodesty, or lust because, look, it's just the body. What's the big deal? And Paul would have us understand the body is very, very important. Fourth, so we move from theological Now we're moving to spiritual. We must focus on more than the physical. So I've said all this on the body to establish what Paul and what the New Testament, how the New Testament views the body, but yet it is an ultimate. 1 Timothy 4.8, Paul is making the case that the physical realm is important, and yet... There's a spiritual component that's even more important. So I'm not saying that they're on equal footing, but I am saying they're both important. And Paul is talking about the importance of working hard in the service of Christ in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 7. He says that we should train ourselves for godliness. And then in verse 8 he says, for bodily training is of some value. That's a good translation, I think. Of some value. If you grew up with the King James translation, it said, it profiteth little. Which made it real easy to stay in bed. You know, it's like, it, it profited, you can even throw a TH on the end. This profiteth little, so you'd go back to sleep, right? Or your verse in, in, in Proverbs is, the lazy man says, there's a lion in the street, there's a lion in the street. That's, that's in the Bible. You lay in bed, there's a lion in the street. I can't go out and hit the, hit the run. I can't do it. What he's saying here is this. That if athletes work hard to train the body, the servant of Jesus ought to work hard, have the same mindset when it comes to godliness. That physical training is good, but godliness and training for it is even better. What Paul is saying is that the physical body is decaying because of our world, and it awaits the resurrection. It's good. The body's good, but it's dying. And therefore, we should focus on more than just the body, and yet we have to keep both in balance. This would be a good place just for us to stop and for me to ask you, so how is that balance going in your life? In terms of the care for your own body versus the care for your soul. Think about how much time and energy you spent just today getting ready physically to come to church. And then think about how much time you spent getting ready spiritually to come to church. 
And my guess is that most of us spent far more time getting ready physically than we did spiritually, if we even got ready at all. And while there's nothing ready or or, or wrong with getting ready physically, I'm glad you cleaned up before you came to church. A a bedhead would be distracting. So we're we're glad for that. At the same time, the reality is the physical isn't ultimate. It's a great article written by Sharon Miller entitled, Why Pastors Should Preach About Body Image. She makes this insightful comment. Countless women prepare for worship on Sunday morning, not by quieting their hearts and minds before the Lord, but by putting on makeup, curling their hair, and squeezing into a pair of spanks. (laughs) Ask your wife what those are. (laughs) Or your mom, okay? So these women... These women then walk into church distracted and insecure, comparing themselves to the women around them and wondering if they measure up and focusing on God is a battle. I cannot speak for the experience of men, but studies show that men fight this battle too. Images of six-pack abs, athletic builds, trendy clothes, and perfectly styled hair are all over the media. So what's the point here? The point is this. The challenge is not to neglect the body, but not to let the body become the center The challenge here is simply for you to ask yourself if your perspective on appearance is in balance. Here's the fifth and the last truth from 1 Peter 3. One of the most important texts about beauty in the Bible is from 1 Peter 3. If you have a young um, girl who's growing into womanhood in your home, this ought to be a verse that is in her soul and known or even better memorized. It talks about the beauty that is imperishable. And she needs this in her heart, mom and dad, to counteract the script in our world. And here's what it says, First Peter 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Now, Peter isn't against all of those things. He's not against clothes. He's not against the braiding of hair and wearing of gold jewelry. What he's against is that your adorning is that alone. He says, verse 4, But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So what what Peter is driving at is this, this hidden person of the heart, this internal, imperishable beauty. This is more than just pretty is what pretty does. This is more than the prettiest you is the you in the inside. What this means is that there is an imperishable beauty, something that is in, in very precious in God's sight, an attractiveness that comes not from just what you look like, but an attractiveness that comes from who you really, really are. You ever had the experience of meeting someone who was really put together? Maybe it was on a a date and you thought, this has got promise, and you knew him or her like at this level, and then... They had all of the trappings of attractiveness and you went out and about 30 minutes in, you were like, the person opened their mouth, they started talking and the more they talked, the worse it got. And you were like, you you want to phone a friend, you know, quick call me or something or, you know, you you want it out, right? 
Or maybe it took a couple weeks, but the more you got to know them, the more you realized this, this is really nice on the outside, but it's, it's not so nice on the inside. Or maybe you got into a long-term relationship and you bought the lie. You know what I need? I need a really handsome man. I need a trophy woman. And you bought the lie that what really matters is attractiveness and beauty. Didn't matter if they were a follower of Jesus and you weren't. Didn't matter if the Bible has anything to say about that. Didn't matter if there were questions about just who they really were as a person. You bought that lie hook, line, and sinker. And you still today remember the scars and the pain and the day when you woke up and thought, what in the world am I doing? Solomon warned his son about that. He warned him in Proverbs chapter 5 about the forbidden woman. Has all of the trappings on the outside of being very attractive. He says this, For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. Her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. You see, there's a bait and switch there. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of her life. Her ways wander and she does not know it. So Solomon is not against beauty and attractiveness. What he is against is thinking that that is the sum total of what's really important. So young people, as you're thinking about spouses in the future, single adults, as you're thinking about, would God give me a mate? On that list, very high needs to be what are the spiritual qualities and characteristics of the beauty that comes from the inside. Just because somebody is really attractive or drop-dead gorgeous or really gifted doesn't mean that either they're the one or that they're as equally beautiful on the inside as they are on the outside. Let me turn it positively. Maybe you know somebody who despite their age or despite their physical limitations are still incredibly attractive. And I don't mean just physically. I mean there is something about her spirit that is so sweet. And when you meet her, you're like, when I get to be her age, however old she is, Lord, I want to be like her. She has a beauty that doesn't fade. Or you meet a man who... He's not old and grumpy. (laughs) So rare, right? No. He's he's old and he's gracious and gentle. And there's something attractive. And all the body is going like this. We're all dying, right? You guys who are young, you know, you're under 40. Just wait. You get over, it's like death is coming. You can feel it. Just... (laughs) It's coming, right? It's just, I'm telling you, that gravitational pull gets worse. So body's going here, and yet the Bible says, doesn't all have to tank. But the soul can go here. There's an imperishable beauty. A beauty that is very precious in God's sight. The problem, though, is that we get so enamored with beauty, and we think it's going to lead us, but it ends up leading us down the wrong path here's another quote from steve's book physical beauty is a shadow food is a shadow security of money is a shadow health is a shadow family is a shadow we long for a relationship with someone greater than us and we settle for cheap substitutes 
race car drivers and football players and movie stars admire from afar. But the real desirability is found in Christ. God made every created beauty in this world as an expression of Christ's beauty and the beauty of the Father's love for the Son. All beauty is a breadcrumb path that leads us to Christ. That's a great way to think about beauty. Now, let me give you a few implications about how we should apply this and how to think about this. How does the issue of identity and beauty relate to the world in which we live? How should we think about ourselves in terms of how we do life and ministry? Here's the first thing. Church, I would tell you that there feels to me like there is more work to do on a biblical view of beauty and the body. I must admit to you, I've not done enough thinking um, on this subject. I would be one of those pastors who have not spoken often on this subject, and yet the more I read on this, the more I thought about it, the more I listened to our culture this week, the more I concluded that this cultural script is loud and pervasive. And we need to offer a more compelling narrative that is rooted in the gospel and points people to the beauty of Christ. We need to help people understand a biblical view of what is really beautiful, what's really lovely, because we live in a culture that is communicating a very loud script. Parents, We need to help our sons and our daughters understand what real beauty is and not assume that they get it or understand it. We have to help bring the gospel to bear into how we even define what attractiveness even means. Again, Sharon Miller, she wrote another article called Jesus and the Post-Baby Body. And I was like, what? (laughs) And it is a fascinating blog post where she's lamenting the fact that after giving birth to her son her body radically changed and then what happened is so what do you what do you do with that as a woman and how do you understand that as a husband when your wife is walking through that and she she writes about the fact that one day after reading Spurgeon and and what Spurgeon said about Christ was Christ, after his resurrection, still bore the marks of his suffering, and he wore them as emblems, said to Thomas, feel my hands and put your hand in my side, that his redemptive act was born in his body. And then she beautifully transferred that into seeing the life-giving effects of giving birth to her son. Her body still bears the marks Her body was affected because she gave life to another and through the lens of the gospel, she looks at her body differently because of that. This is what she writes. She wrote, Every day my new body reminds me of the good work and sacrifice I did on behalf of my son. Or I should say, it has the potential to remind me if I choose to see it that way. In other words, she needs a biblical theology of stretch marks is what she needs. Rather than strive after the ideal post-baby body, I hope I can glory in the lines of my own story, especially since they echo a much greater story of one who laid down his life so that I might have life. Isn't that awesome? All that to say, we've got we to think about this. 
This is where we live. Here's the second thing, and that is that we need to create the right appetite for beauty. Solomon wisely warns his son about the fleeting attractiveness of the forbidden woman. He talks about it, he describes it, and it seems as though we ought to be doing the same for our children, especially in light of the loud cultural script around us. If we don't, listen to me, if we don't wade into these waters, dialogue with our kids, address it as we can with our grandchildren, speak into this issue, our children will learn a script that is unhealthy, unbalanced, and ungodly. And we need to ask ourselves, how are we speaking into this? What is attractive? What does it mean to be beautiful? And then even ask ourselves, what messages do we send to our kids about what we value as they watch how we act and conduct ourselves? Our over-imaged, over-photoshopped culture has created an unrealistic and frankly ugly vision of what beauty is, and we need to reshape by what we define as beautiful. Third. To do that, we need to affirm and celebrate and invest in internal, in the internal beauty of godliness. So if we treasure godliness, then we ought to praise it when we see it, celebrate it when it bears fruit, and invest in it financially. What do I mean invest in it financially? I mean your time, I mean your money. Kids don't just become godly on their own. You, you got to make decisions in life about where you're going to point them to. And, and you have to make decisions about what you involve them, even in this church. And if they're going to be involved in youth ministry and hear the word in Sunday school, if they're going to be with you in worship. And all of those things take hard work and energy and effort. But you're building what godliness is, internal or external. And you can get sucked into a cultural vacuum that just says just kind of do what everybody else does and if you do what everybody else does then they will believe the script that everybody else believes and finally and this is just a pastoral care item and that is that we need to help people who are fighting the internal battle with how they look so I did research this week, looked in the scriptures, my heart just ached for people who have, and there's got to be a bunch of you here who have been told over your lifetime, you're not wanted, you're ugly, and you've been rejected over and over and over, and you still bear the scars and the hurts of painful words or comparisons. And every time you look in the mirror, or every time you think about you, or you saw that video, there is some sort of turmoil in your soul. And my hope is that you will be able to find rest in knowing that your identity doesn't come from what you look like, but what it means to be in Christ. And out of the fullness of that identity, out of the rest that comes from knowing that my acceptance doesn't come from what my appearance is, it comes from who I belong to, My hope is that you could then be in Christ and be at rest. See, at the end of the day, your identity does not come from what you look like, but who you look to. And in looking to Jesus, you find Him, and there's nothing more beautiful, more attractive, more lovely or compelling than Him. Who you are is not what you look like. Who you are is what you look and who you look namely Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to use your word 
in this very personal area to speak to us. Pray that You'd minister grace to those who have been wounded deeply in their lifetime, who still bear the scars, who walk around with a private hidden battle. And pray that today would be the first step of many in coming to terms with who they really are in you. And I ask, Father, that by your grace, today you would speak to us about what areas in this arena we need to think about. Whether it relates to our own souls, that our homes, our priorities. Lord, that we could hear and know your script. And now as we close, church, there'll be some folks up here afterwards who'd love to be able to pray with you if there's anything going on in your soul. We're just going to give you a moment just to quiet your heart before the Lord. Before you just jump right back into everything you were doing before, let's take a moment And just ask the Lord, what is it that you had me here today for, Lord? When you hear the music, you're dismissed. Let's just spend some time. Lord, what is it that you're saying today?